Men, we're under attack. On every side, evil forces encircle us and they desire to tear down and destroy that which we stand upon. Our families and our faith, our forefathers are being overthrown on every side. And just as in the days of Isaiah, we are witnessing that justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. Truth is fallen in the streets. And just as it is today, the reason is that there is no man to be found. The question is, how long will we allow this injustice to take place? How long will we relinquish the removal of righteousness? How far will we allow truth to fall in our streets? Where are the men of courage called to fight for the faith? Where are the mighty men who will raise a fist and declare, ENOUGH! Where are the fearless few who race towards giants, who swing jawbones, who crumble walled cities, who plague evil rulers, and who walk on the water? Where are the men who carry crosses? There's no refuting that something must be done as enough is enough, but too often we look at our neighbor. We point to the pastor or we depend upon the deacon to be that man, and as a result of our pointing passive fingers, Truth has fallen in our streets. There's no intercessor to be found in our day. But what if? What if God's plan for every man was to take that stand? What if each man were willing to be God's man in the battle? What if God has called you to be the one to charge the enemy's camp? What if he has commissioned you to boldly believe and fight fearlessly on his behalf? Well, maybe you're thinking, I, I could never. I'm, I'm not strong enough. I, I, I don't know enough. I'm a nobody going nowhere. But consider the explanation of through whom men are called to be valiant that we find in Psalm 60, verse 12. And it says, through God, we shall do valiantly. For he it is that shall tread down our enemies. We are calling all men who are ready to return to the resolute and rigid righteousness of our faith. Men who possess a power and carry a courage to stand for God's word in a world bent on destroying it. How many of you use a mirror every day? Eric is, I didn't, Eric's the only honest one. Hopefully, hopefully you don't spend as much time in front of it as your wife does. But I, I would say all of us use a mirror at some point in the day, even if it's by accident, you know, brushing your teeth, the mirror's there, right? Yeah. <laughs> by the looks of you guys, you may not use the mirror as much as I thought, so, but... So we're not actively using it. Right, right. So my wife and I, uh, one of our favorite shows that we watch is called Shark Tank. Anybody watch Shark Tank before? I love that show. Uh, basically, this is the premise of the show. Entrepreneurs will come on the show and they will pitch an idea to billionaires trying to get an investment. <laughs> And one of the most ridiculous uh, items that I can remember someone bringing on the show was called the skinny mirror. <laughs> it's as dumb as it sounds, I promise you. Literally, this lady goes on national television with a funhouse mirror that makes you look skinnier when you stand in front of it. Just like a carnival mirror, right? It made you look skinnier when you looked in front of it. It would take your reflection and it would slim it and skew it from what you really were. Now, you weren't really skinny in real life, right? You still were fat, standing in front of the skinny mirror. But the entire point was this. When you looked in this mirror, you could fool yourself. 
Everyone around you could see you were still fat. But when you looked in that mirror, you fooled yourself. It was a skinny mirror. Didn't go anywhere on the show. Didn't get an investment in case you're wondering. But what I want to talk about this morning is what the book of James says that we do the same thing in our lives. A lot of us may not have the skinny mirror at home, but a lot of us fool ourselves or deceive ourselves as James says. And I want to bring that to our attention this morning. We're going to read here in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whosoever looketh into a perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed. So we all know this. This is a very well-known scripture. We all know this scripture. Uh, And there's so much here to unpack, but obviously for sake of time we can't. But James here, the brother of Jesus, he's writing about authenticity. Amen? He's writing about authenticity here. It's not what a man says he is. It's not what a man thinks he is. It's not how he portrays himself or what other other people think of him. But a man is measured by his actions. And here, James illustrates that by using a mirror, right? He says that men hear the words of God, but they don't do them. It's like looking in a mirror And you completely forget what you looked like when you walk away from that mirror. But if a man will look into the law of liberty and mirror what he sees in that law of liberty, then he'll be blessed. That's what James is saying here. So gentlemen, today our question is this. Are you remembering what you see in the mirror? What is your reflection revealing about you? I'm not asking what you believe this morning. I'm not asking what you say or what others think of you. But what is your reflection revealing? Number one, God in glass. So the point that James makes here is this. When we look in the mirror, we should see God. Amen? As godly men, when we look in the mirror, we should see God. We should look into the law of liberty, which is the will of God, and we should reflect what we find there in that mirror that looks like God. This was God's intention in creating us, right? This is, this is what he created us for, that we would be little tiny walking reflections of God. We would be people from God, of God, to God, doing God's will. And we've talked about this before in this men's ministry, right? We've talked about how God created us in his image. And his intended image. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says this. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God created man in his image, in his likeness. We are meant to be a representation. We are meant to be a reflection of God. And from the perfect paradise of Eden, before the fall, right, man was, in fact, a reflection of God. But then man sins, and sin enters the picture, and there's a problem. Because no longer by default did man reflect God in whose image he was created. Does that make sense? Are you with me? And so we read in the Old Testament that there are two categories of characters that we find. 
Two types of men in the Bible. Those who reflected the God in whose image they were created. Those who followed the will of God. Those who looked like the God that they were created after when they looked in the mirror. Those who saw the God that created them and did what he desired with their life. And as a result, they were blessed and prosperous because they reflected his image. But then there were those who looked in the mirror and still saw God, yet they turned away from that mirror and did what they wanted and reflected themselves instead of the God in whose image they were created. So think think with me real quick. Cain and Abel, one reflected God, one reflected man. Jacob and Esau, one reflected God, one reflected man. David and Saul, one reflected God, one reflected man. They all looked in that mirror. They all were created in God's image, yet one category of man looked at God's image in whom they were created and decided to do things their way. The other looked at the image of God that they were created in and did things God's way. Looking in that mirror, seeing God, turning away, forgetting or remembering what you saw. That's what James tells us here. And so guys, that's our goal. That's our aim. That's the reason we were created. We strive to reflect God who created us in his image that the world around us might come to know God. In every moment that we're alive, we make a conscious decision to either look in the mirror and forget the God we were meant to look like or go back to our lives doing things our way. That's our options. You can, you can say you're a Christian all you want to. You can serve Jesus all you want to. But what really determines whether your religion is vain or whether your religion is pure is what you do when you look away from that mirror. Whose will are you operating under? Yours or His? Have you forgotten whose image you were created in? Have you looked in the mirror at yourself and having seen God's image, turned away to forget what you saw? Because he intended for your image to reflect him. So, if that's the image of God, if he intended for us to look like him, then what is the ideal image? Because can we all admit we are not perfectly representing God? We do not look identical to God that we were meant to. So what would it look like for a man who is meant to reflect God, who is meant to be created in God's image, what would it look like for a man to do that perfectly, 100% of the time, all times, choosing to do God's will, God's desire in his life, reflecting God perfectly, a perfect mirrored image? Well, it would look like Jesus. It would look like the life of Jesus. That's exactly what it would look like, Ross. A man that always, in every situation... Every temptation, every predicament, every circumstance singularly and only reflected the image of God. He looks into the mirror, he sees God, and he does what he sees in that mirror. This is exactly what we find in Jesus. The fulfillment of God's perfect image in the likeness of man. The life of Jesus was not his own. The life of Jesus was not what he wanted to do. It was not what he wanted to say. It was not where he wanted to go. Because I think too often we look at Jesus and we think, well, he's God, right? He's God-man. And so as God-man, God-man can do what God-man wants. That's not the life of Jesus. Do we get that? That's not the life of Jesus. Jesus did not do what he wanted. He did not go where he wanted. He did not say what he wanted. He reflected the God in whose image he was created. 
Jesus was nothing more than a reflection. In fact, Jesus tells us this. John 14, 7 through 10. If you know me, you should have known the Father also. And from henceforth, you know him, and you have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus saith unto him, Have I not been with you so long of a time that you have not yet known me, Philip? He that seeth me have seen the Father. And how saith you then, Show us the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he does speak. And so here, Philip asks a seemingly harmless question. Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus, we want to see the Father. Show us the Father. To which Jesus replies, uh, Philip, what do you think I've been doing all this time? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I perfectly reflect him. I perfectly portray exactly what he is. Because God looking in the mirror is Jesus. Jesus said what God would say. Jesus did what God would do. Jesus went where God would go. Jesus was the ideal image of God in the likeness of man, as man was intended to be. And so as we've said this morning already, as we've said a hundred times in this men's ministry, Jesus sets the bar for us. Jesus sets the standard of manliness. Jesus is what God intended for man to be, God's ideal image when we look away from that mirror. I know you're like maybe scratching your head saying like, where's the orphans and the poor? I promise we're going to get to that. I have not totally skipped our lesson completely. We're going to get there. But we had to build a foundation first. All right. So guile and glass. I'm not sure why we don't use the word guile anymore, but I kind of wish we'd bring that back. I kind of like the word guile. It's not a great, it's not a good word. It's a bad thing, but that's just a side note. So hopefully up until this point, you're understanding, you're following. This has all been preliminary. We were created by God to reflect God. Amen. We were created by God. Amen. To reflect God. Amen. All right. But James goes on from here to write a couple of strange verses. It's kind of like James is writing and he loses train of thought and starts talking about something else. The next verse we read, James 1, 26, says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is what? It is vain. We've all heard this verse a thousand times. But what I want us to carefully consider this morning is that what we have here is a man who has looked into the mirror, he's turned away, And he's forgotten God in himself. And in so doing, this man goes his own way and he does his own will. And in doing and acting and saying what he wants to do and act and say. He's unbridled. He's unrestrained. He's living life his way. But sadly, if you read here, this man does not deceive God. This man does not deceive the men around him. Who does this man deceive? Himself. This man deceives himself. Guys, this should scare us. This should shake us to our core because when we deceive others, at least we know what we're doing. When we deceive ourselves, we have no idea. That should scare us. It is not what we say. It is not who we claim to be that makes us a reflection of him. 
And James writes here that your religion is vain. It's pointless. It's purposeless. It's waste. We might as well take every single religious thing we do, whether you sit in a pew on Sunday, whether you read your Bible, whether you study your Bible, whether you come to men's ministry on Saturdays, take it, crumble it up, and throw it in the God-sized garbage because it's a waste. It's vain. It's useless. It's putrid. It is worth nothing if you are not being bridled, if you are not being changed into His likeness. The change is the goal. Being different, being like Him, reflecting Him, that is our aim. And this is the exact problem that James states here, right? So a man who has looked at himself, who should have seen God in the mirror, yet who turns away and forgets the God he should have seen in that mirror. He goes out and he claims to be godly. He goes out and he's deceived because he's convinced that he is a religious man. Yet his actions say otherwise. His tongue tells us that he's nothing like the God that he claims. His actions speak louder than his words. And James sounds the alarm here. Religion means nothing. Religious practices mean nothing if you're not submitting and allowing God to bridle and restrain and change your life. You may be a hearer of God's words. You may read and study and even teach God's words. But if you are not applying God's words to make you look like God, waste, vain, no good, pointless religion. But then we get to glory in glass. So if verse 26 seems odd and out of place by James, verse 27 really is odd and completely out of place. It's like James totally goes ADHD and loses his train of thought and starts talking about something else altogether. It seems to not align at all. Because the next verse, the very next verse, says this. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Does that seem out of place to anybody else? Does that seem like an odd train of thought to anybody else? James tells us here that religion is not what you say of God, but how much of God you reflect. And then James says that pure religion, as opposed to vain religion, pure religion that is undefiled is to visit the fatherless and the widows. And their affliction and to remain unspotted. Shouldn't James have written here, according to how we live our lives, according to our churches, according to what we see in Christian men, should not James have written here that pure religion is worshiping God on Sundays? Pure religion is reading your Bible or praying or tithing or fasting or knowing proper doctrines or having greater faith? That's pure religion. That's where it's all about. That's the pudding right there. That's it. And yet, James writes here, James, the Jesus' brother, the one who grew up beside him, who became a believer later in life after having watched his life. James says, pure religion is widows, orphans, affliction. That's pure religion. To defend the defenseless. To stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. This is undefiled faith. But what I want us to grasp real quick is this word religion here. Because I think a lot of, we use the word religion in, in somewhat of a derogatory, not derogatory, but not a great term, right? We don't, we don't, we don't use religion. We think of religion as the other, you know, Buddhist, that's a religion, or Muslims, that's a, Christianity, ooh, that's, this isn't religion as we would use it here. That's not what James writes of. Here James writes of the result 
of faith, the result of religion. He's referring to the expression of religion, not religion itself. So in other words, the religion of a light bulb, stay with me, the religion of a light bulb, the expression that a light bulb has electricity is when you flip on a light switch, what happens? The light bulb cannot help itself but to give light. It cannot help itself but to turn on. That's what he's talking about here. That's what this word religion means here. It's an expression of what you have. It's an expression of faith, an expression of religion. Another example would be that of a mother, right? A mother loves her child, and so she bathes it and feeds it and cares for it. Now, is bathing and feeding and caring, is that a mother's love? No, that's an expression, a display, an effect of the love she has. Does that make sense? And that's what this word here means Religion. It's an expression. This is what will result if you have religion. But still it's odd that he ends this verse that your expression of your faith is to care for the fathers, fatherless, and for the widows. This is the purest form of faith. But notice what other word James uses here next to pure. Pure religion and undefiled. Ooh, this is a great word. Because the root word of undefiled in the Greek, are you ready for this? You have to at least put on your best smile because this is really great, guys. Thank you, Jacob. The root word of undefiled is alpha, which is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, which none of you care about. But it is also the name that Jesus gives himself in Revelations 1. I am the alpha and the omega. James could have easily written here that pure religion and Jesus-like religion, Jesus-like expression of faith, is to care for the fatherless and the widows. The most Jesus-like way to express the faith that's within you is to do this. Is that not true? Is that not the most Jesus-like thing you can do in life? Is that not the most Jesus-like thing you can do as a Christian? Pure religion and Jesus-like expression of faith is to visit the fatherless and care for the widows. I want us to take a few minutes to comprehend the importance of defending the defenseless and caring for those in need because as James rightly says here, this is the most pure, the most undefiled, the most Jesus-like expression of faith. This is the most God-like characteristic that a man can bear because by caring for others, By visiting and looking after the widows and the orphans, we are most reflecting God in whom we looked at in that mirror. Defending the defenseless is at the absolute core and the absolute center of who God is. It's because of Him in us that we cannot help but to help others. And the purest, most Jesus-like expression of faith is to defend the defenseless. Consider... How many times we see this play out in the life of Jesus? We've already talked about this morning, right? We've already established that Jesus was the ideal image, what man was supposed to look like in the image of God. But we look at his life and it's almost like Jesus just can't help himself but to help other people. Have you ever read, you know, we were talking about this morning, not the things he taught, but the things he did. He just can't help himself, right? He just can't help himself but to heal somebody. He just can't help himself but to help others. It was an expression of the God he was reflecting. He couldn't pass a blind person up. He couldn't neglect a cripple. He couldn't refrain from the lepers because there was something or someone inside of him that wouldn't let him. Did having compassion and did helping others make him God? No, 
but it proved that he was. It was an expression of God in him. Even in the most inconvenient of places, right? In the most inconvenient of places where Jesus should have just took a pass, Jesus couldn't help but help others. Even on the Sabbath day, he helped others. Even if the person was unclean and not allowed to be touched by the law, he couldn't help it. He helped them. He healed them. Even if it meant arguing with his critics, even if it meant judgment of the onlooker, still Jesus saw the need and he could not help but to help the helpless. He couldn't help but to step in and do something to defend the defenseless. Because at his core, this is who the God that dwelt within him was. And so this was the expression of his faith. And so I'm afraid that in in many of our churches and even in our lives, we have lost a personal commitment for compassion on others, personally. This was the main problem. We've already talked about this some with the pastor. This is the main problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees, was it not? They had the Bible. They knew the Bible. They lived through the letter of the law. But in doing so, they missed the entire point of the Bible, which is to show them who God was. And who God is, is a defender of the defenseless. That's who God is. You cannot know the God of the Bible without finding a fierce defender of the defenseless. That is just the facts. In fact, any guesses? Let's do prices right. Any guesses on how many verses roughly... Speak about caring for the poor, the widows, the orphans in the Bible. Just throw a number out there. 106. 106. Any other takers? Just guess. Tom's the only gutsy one. Come on, Eric. You know you got a number. A thousand. Price is right, rolls. You're a little over. So, 324 times, roughly. 324 times in Scripture, we find God saying, help those who are helpless, defend the defenseless. This is, listen, this is more times than the Bible speaks about love. This is more times than the Bible speaks about forgiveness, than it speaks about joy, than it speaks about grace. 324 times God's Word gets a big fat highlighter out and says, this is who I am as God. I care about the helpless. I care about the defenseless. I care about the orphans and the poor and the widows. I care about those who are incapable of caring for themselves. In God's Word, the book intended to show us what God is like, He takes 324 precious verses and He says, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. I care for others. I began to make a list of these verses and began, there's just so many great examples. Pastor brought up the Levitical law. There's so many places in the, in the Jewish law that would say this so many years you have to help them or this, this amount of food you have to set aside, tithe for the poor and leave, don't pick all the grapes off for the poor and do this for the poor. It's all about caring for others. But deep down we know this. Do we not, do we not deep down know that God is a defender? Do we not know deep down that He is a carer of others? We know this. I want to direct our hearts to Proverbs 14.31 that gives us a consequence of our reflection of the God who's in us. Proverbs 14.31 He who oppresses the poor shows contempt to their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. In our study this past month, we were challenged really with one main objective. Take a stand. Was that not the main bottom line? Take a stand. 
It doesn't have to be the widows and the orphans like James writes about. It doesn't have to be the poor that we read of here in Proverbs. But as a man in whose image is of God, as a man who represents God to this world, as a man who is now the literal hands and feet of him, are you taking a stand in the face of injustice? Whatever the cause, are you taking a stand? Because if you are not... You're showing contempt for your maker. You're failing in the face of your father whom you're meant to reflect. Jesus as the incarnate hands and feet of God in flesh could not pass a person without helping them because of the expression of who dwelt within him. He knew that at the core of who God was, there was a defender for the defenseless. Or maybe, to put it in terms we all know, we we spoke about earlier this morning, we know that God is just. Is he not? God is just. And as a just God dwelling in a man, a man should at all times be desirous to uphold justice because of the just God that dwells within us. By upholding justice, it expresses the just God that dwells within him. God is just. And as a just God, his hands, his feet, whom we are, we should be upholding justice. It would be inconceivable to go through the Gospels, right, and read of Jesus passing up a blind man. He's, he's walking by, he sees a blind man, he closes his eyes, goes the other way. We could never conceive him doing that. We could never conceive him seeing a leper and going the opposite direction. Oh no, he's going to see me. Jesus goes to them. He defends them. He helps them. Yet, are we doing the same? Are we taking a stand We are a busy church. The pastor's already talked about us. We are a busy church. We have served at homeless shelters and we do many benevolent things. But what I desire for you to grasp today is a personal taking on of what it means to be a mighty man. And to be a mighty man, it means to reflect God's image. And to reflect God's image means to reflect justice because you have a just God within you. Are you seeking justice? Are you loving mercy? Are you walking humbly day by day, moment by moment, to reflect God? We may read of poverty or homelessness or human trafficking. Many examples our our chapter gave this month. We may hear about the orphans and the widows. We may convince ourselves that it's someone else's problem. Or maybe we just convince ourselves it's too out of proportion. We can't handle it. But do you realize by being inactive in defending the defenseless, we're saying that the God we reflect just isn't big enough. We're just one person. By We say... My God can't do it when we say we can't do it. If you think of yourself, it's someone else's problem. It's not mine to worry about. You're saying, my God doesn't care. Because do we realize we're doing these things through Him, not through us? I want to end today with a very short story. Uh, Probably some of you have heard it before. But how many of you know or have ever heard of a man named Richard Wormbrand? Anybody? I expected you've heard of him. Anybody else heard of Richard Wormbrand? I want to end with this story today. It's so challenging and really has just pricked my heart. But this gets our point across today. The year was 1944. The Soviet Union had occupied Romania and began to establish the communist regime. The young pastor Richard Wormbrandt and his wife Sabina were among many of the religious leaders in attendance of the Congress of Cults held in 1945 by the Romanian Communist government who elected Joseph Stalin as their president. 
as many religious leaders, many godly men stood up to praise what was going on and to pledge their support, Wormbrandt's wife and himself were sickened by the injustice they saw. Sabina, Wormbrandt's wife, turned to Richard and said, Richard, stand up and wash the shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. Richard replied to his wife, If I do so, you will lose your husband. And she responded, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. That led to the Wormbrands choosing to stand up for their belief on live radio in Romania. And the following two decades, two decades of their life, they spent paying for this decision. The Wormbrands were tortured and imprisoned and went through unspeakable things. Wormbrand would go on to write the book Tortured by or Tortured for Christ, rather, which tells the story of him and his wife who were both imprisoned and uh, tortured for their faith. And they would go on to begin Voice of the Martyrs Ministry, which some of you may have heard of. Are we mighty men or are we patsies? When evil prevails, when injustice takes place in this world that God placed us in domain over, when this world spits in the face of Christ, and when it shames Him, when the defenseless are not defended, do we cower? Do we rationalize? Do we fear? Do we consider the price to be paid too high? And as a result, we wash our hands of the injustice. Who will take a stand? Who will wipe the shame from Christ's face? Our reflection reveals a lot about us, gentlemen. What do you do after you walk away from looking at God in the mirror? Is God being seen through your expression of what you see in that glass? Is your religion pure or vain? Thanks so much for joining us for another session of the Sand Hill Men's Ministry. We hope that your soul has been stirred and your faith has been fortified in what God has called each of us to be as a mighty man. Men who are up for the challenge are invited to take part live, online, or in person in our monthly meetings of the Sandhill Men's Ministry. You can also, of course, catch the video of each session or the podcast as a follow-up. For more information about the Sandhill Men's Ministry, to attend our next meeting, or for additional Christian content, please visit our website at www.sandhillfwb.com. Thanks so much for joining us today as we continue on in Christ.